listen, you've got five seconds to listen to this podcast, or I will shoot a phaser directly into your ass, because this is V'ger Please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. And my name is Joseph. And I've been practicing my singing in the car. I'm your co-host, Peter. Peter, what episode of Star Trek Enterprise did we watch this week? I like how we're getting so to the point, but there's no fucking around anymore. I mean, it's good, and I actually want to talk about it. Like, that's the thing. Like, we were fucking around a lot earlier in the season because it's like, oh, Jesus, fuck. I don't want to do this. Like, this is real bad. Yeah, I feel like season poo's uh, well behind us now. We're, We're firmly into season two, episode 21, The Breach. Who is the director again of this, my friend? The Breach first aired April 23rd, 2003, telepay by Chris Black and John Sieben. Story by Daniel McCarthy, directed by Robert Duncan McNeil. Spoiler alert, I think this episode's amazing. Uh, mm. Shockingly good, in my opinion, uh, because I just didn't remember it very much, uh, and except for one scene that still held up uh, to me in regards to Flox's story arc here. How much of that do you th- how much of the quality of this episode do you think is Robert Duncan McNeil's directing? It felt like there was actually a difference here in that because he knows what's works on camera for this franchise, he kind of gave the the all of the actors the right beats to hit that made it all like Mayweather in particular was helped tremendously here by giving him an entirely different direction to go in. I was not super in love with the episode. I didn't think it was bad, but I, I'm not singing the praise for it. You hadn't honestly, until I just saw uh, Robert McNeil on the director credit here, you know, this isn't freaks. There isn't that, that finger, that thumbprint of a style mark. Yeah. There isn't an artistry to it. It was more performance driven changes in my opinion. And I don't know if that was, Maybe him saying, listen, this is where you need to be with this, you know. Thinking back on the episode and what you're describing now, I I agree. I think that there is a, I don't want to say it's a charm, but there is a momentum that the scenes had that I think someone, listen, man, I've been the guy in the uniform. Let's try going this way. The hard part about looking at this episode and really saying how is this different from previous episodes is the climbing gimmick is so pervasive in this uh, that it really makes it an odd duck for the season because there's this heavy reliance on a physical um, activity component. Yeah, and it does drag. It does drag. And once they get a little deeper, there's also a lot of plot hole ish. Gripey stuff, specifically with the climbing. Right. Uh, that distracted me from it. But looking at the good drama in sick bay and the interaction that the Enterprise crew will come to have with the uh, scientists, they're there to rescue. Yeah, there, there's a bit more action, uh, not action. There's a, there's more energy on the screen. I yeah. Think. Energy, I guess, is the right way to describe it. Someone wound these guys up, and that would absolutely be the effect of the the director on it. Also, I mean, when's the last time um, Robert Duncan McNeil directed an episode of Star Trek? You start bringing in some of these guys like um, David Livingston and these other people. Are, I don't want to say they're they're punching a clock, but it's they've been in that director's chair with Federation uniforms in front of them over and over and over and over again. So, like, you do something a lot, you get used to it, and you're not getting excited. Uh, McNeil, this still has to be 
probably in the 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 beginning portion of this guy's professional directorial career track so you know still fresh and a lot of energy that he's bringing to the table not some guy like oh hey you know i'm directing uh six episodes this oh cool i'll see you you know two weeks from now we're gonna be doing the next one like that moonlighting is still there right the moonlight phase is still there yeah he he had done the four episodes of voyager and then one episode of enterprise up to this point which was cold front which you know wasn't wasn't anyone's favorite but I think you're right in that he's still kind of fresh to directing and that might have helped deliver the energy that we're identifying here. And I loved it because I think that the energy in, in three particular spots in this episode just made it like feel like a different show. It felt like this was a show that had confidence in itself, had direction that where the actors kind of really were getting into what they were doing. So much of the season poo is just felt like, guys just cash and checks. You know, it just didn't, I didn't feel like anyone really cared about what was going on, you know, and we have blamed all of that on Braga and um, Rick Berman, but we have seen the same four or five director names over and over again. And I would say that they, you know, they are just as complicit uh, in cashing that check. And exactly what I said before, like this is a day and this might as well be a nine to five for some of these directors, you see their names so much. Like I don't blame them for not getting excited. Like, yeah. It, oh, okay. We're it, all the criticisms that you and I levy at these episodes. These directors are not stupid. They can see a retread. Yeah. Oh God, here's this fucking, you know, we, we beat the death, uh, this concept back in Voyager. And here am I doing it in enterprise for the third time already. Like, yeah, it's going to take the energy out of a room. It could be a, a turkey script. And if you've got a uh, a director who's not energized, I, absolutely. I think that's a big contributing factor to a lot of our complaints about early season poo. And he brought up Frakes, of course, and he's famous for bringing a ton of energy whenever he's behind the camera. Absolutely. Know, to, the, to the point where other actors like, Jesus Christ, dude, like <laughs> you need to tone it down. So uh, maybe... You know, it's it's hard to know how much is him, but I'm willing to give him a lot of credit for something I think turned out great. And uh, it's really a Flox episode, which is where the teaser starts. Um, it does start with Flox introducing the concept of tribbles to Hoshi, who's, you know, en- enraptured by it, as all people are. And then he immediately feeds it to something and goes, yeah, you, you, the only reason that they don't like dominate their entire planet is that they're food. <laughs> for all the predator species on their planet you're not supposed to take them off because all they do is breed prodigiously that's why i've got them in a lockbox. and uh he gets a message from hoshi hands it to him and he looks ashen and then uh they move into the plot which is that there is a planet that the nx01 is nearby and has had a change in government had a little uh had a little uh unstable uh change of of power, a little January 6 action going on up in there. And the new boss does not want dirty Xenos on the planet and has demanded everyone leave, which is a problem because there's a bunch of Denoblian scientists who are deep within some caves there that haven't been able to be communicated with in weeks. And so someone's got to go and get them out. And in, in a classic Star Trek trope, they're the only ship nearby. You know, we broke down how many ships are in 
24th century Starfleet, how many worlds, how many populated worlds are out there. Yeah, it's a so, lot. You know, it's a it's an old song and dance. Oh, you're the closest ship. But like that's going to happen a lot. Space is big. So thin that like, yeah, <laughs> that's legit as fuck, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like you don't have a huge Starfleet because it would be really expensive to maintain. And you don't have a lot of people who necessarily want to be part of it. Right. Oh. Like you live in a post uh, scarcity utopia. I don't want to go off and face space horrors. I'm going to stay right here on my planet. No, you know what? I don't think I need to be on the brink of madness uh, three times a pay period. Actually, yeah, I no. think I'm going to stay here on the holodeck and just get my dick cyber sucked while I, uh, I don't know, replicate cocaine or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> you just have a lot of people who make first contact with the holodeck and they don't survive. And that's just part of population control in the 24th century. You know? Oh, like, yeah. You know, it's like, here's the holodeck. And it's like a it's like a shit test for if you can control yourself or not. And if you can, it's like, congratulations, to the... welcome to the rest of our utopian society. And then you come in and there's one guy who's just OD'd on crack cocaine. And he's like, OK, well, <laughs> that guy wasn't going to make it. We used to talk some and, you know, we're not doing it here because there's no holodecks. But like, I love I love talking about the holodeck and what that could realistically do to a population. And you're talking about population control. Like, yeah, if you just go out. Who needs Tinder? Who needs disposable dates and, and real flesh? I mean, if you could just go come in a hologram and, and then make it go away, like I think you would see the Federation uh the the, the record of childbirth <laughs> plummet. Plummet. The second the, the the holodecks become accessible to the general public. I mean, the, the in the 24th century, holodecks were new technology. You so know, and that, that's something to remember. So maybe gonna, not even really be accessible to the public. Again, the amount of arguing and hair splitting that we have done on details like the holodeck, which per encounter at Farpoint was this newfangled, crazy technology that has impressed everybody. And the amount of mental gymnastics we've had to do be like, well, you know, it's that, you know, we're version 10 or whatever. You know, that there were holodecks before and not even counting fucking discovery and the shit they had going on in there. But, you know, there's there's some sort of holographic simulator or whatever on the Enterprise, uh, you know, Kirk's Enterprise in some form or another. It's been even even Phlox, right? Was that his name? Childhood tale fliblet and giblet or whatever. I was going to say, did you just confuse the chief medical officer of the NX-01 with... The throwaway, uh, what, what what was it? Uh, Fleebling? Childs. Basically, uh, Blue's Clues for the 24th century. Listen, you're trying to say it was throwaway. They they tried to sell a real doll. Like, they wanted yeah, okay. this thing to be... Uh, anyways, the reason I'm bringing up the arguing about minor technical details and ship's lore is that as they are prepping the away team to go down to the surface that is going to try to rescue these Denoblians. We cut to the shuttle bay, Joe. We do. Now we, we talk do. a lot about the shuttle pods and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I'm going to have to beat this fucking dead horse. All right. Cause this is got a grudge to settle. <laughs> with the this shot, this shot of the <laughs> shuttle pod, right? Yeah. You see it. Okay. So, so I'm going to call Jack out again for like the eighth time here. This fucking hatch he's saying is the hatch they use to secure to like dock with other ships. That hatch cannot open it. If if what he's calling the connector arm is extended, 
this hatch cannot physically open and then also connect with the ship. I put the pictures up on the trauma support group. <laughs> For it to do that, it would have to crush the door and break it off. And it's ridiculous, right? We're arguing about a set piece that I can look at it and see it's three quarter inch plywood. Like there's nothing space sturdy about this goddamn thing at all. But yeah, this <laughs> this ongoing grudge will never end. I, I just it's it's just a, a you know like anything nerd related. It's a big waste of effort and and breath in something that the people who are responsible for making it uh, didn't give four minutes of thought to. Well, like, what 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 had a lot of thought put into this was the away team that was going to go down and save the miners because it was going to be uh it was going to be trip. Oh, this is going to be Reed and the new character we've never met before, Ensign Travis Mayweather, except this guy is the Uber Chad <laughs> version of Travis Mayweather that apparently came out of a fucking cloning vat or just like maybe going home, revitalized him or something. Because this guy might as well, have, he bears no resemblance to the Travis Mayweather we've seen before. This is a man who's, who's, who's so in charge of the situation, he's clearly intimidating his senior officers without trying. Well, listen, when you make it clear that people are going to be in each other's company, pissing and pooping into bags that they will then be keeping on their purse and you're throwing everybody's game off a little bit. All right. <laughs> uh, examining Mayweather, and this is what Chris Black and, and John Sheban, right? So yeah. this is uh, established character lore for Mayweather back in two days and two nights, which was their initial visit to Riza. Uh, Mayweather was doing rock climbing while, you know, those guys were trying to pick up alien strange in the bar and getting abducted by shapeshifters. Travis had a climbing accident. I think he broke his arm maybe, and then got super sick in the hospital and that became its own flocks adventure. So, and, and let me go ahead and say it right now, further reflecting the way this episode has made me about what a badass professional climber Mayweather is how fucking absurd that the best guy at climbing in cave. Where do you find caves, Joe? Uh, you would find those on planets. Oh, planets. So yeah. So the, like the, the thing that Travis has the least amount of experience with. So not on <laughs> a space truck. No, no, you do not find climbing situations on 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 space trucks. There are no caves in in space trucks. There's no. Uh, bottomless pits to to jump and rappel down no. what a ridiculous thing in hindsight to lay on this guy's uh known trait list like <laughs> i'd have bought it off of hoshi yeah or reed yeah or uh rostov or whatever the fuck his name was <laughs> who knew that uh trip was acting goofy I, any person on this ship is a credible cave wall rock climbing expert Except, the except for Travis, yes. <laughs> like everyone except for him, this trait makes sense. Like you said, it is continuity. So okay, like you put it in, you put it on the character sheet. It's it's in there now. Mm-hmm. But it is ridiculous that he is a apparently a professional climber. And I loved the way that he was just, you know, they go down to the surface and it's fucking intimidating as shit. And and trips like, is there a beginner, cl- you know, cliff for us to try on? He goes, no, no I, I'll I'll go first. Don't worry, don't worry, Commander. The adult is here. <laughs> I'll handle this. And like the entire episode, he's like dogging his his bosses about how much they suck at what they're doing right now. What I also love is this is the first 
episode. God, I can't tell you the last time it's happened where it's like we've got a mission. It revolves an away team down to a planet. And Archer, I, I think maybe for the first time ever in the entire series, is like, you know what? I'm going to stay on the ship. <laughs> I'm not going to go climbing. I'm going to manage the situation. For whatever fucking reason, you know, uh, the scientist, any any other stupid fucking reason to go down to a surface, he's on it. But this one's like, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, trip and the security guy and my fucking helmsman who, again, mind bogglingly is <laughs> You're my best climber. <laughs> yeah, you guys go down. I, I'm going to stay up here. It's good uh, that he stays up there because the the A plot is the climbing. The B plot. Actually, it's basically A and A, A1 and A2. I mean, basically, even billing, I think. Yeah. Uh, is that there's an alien transport that has en- super engine trouble. The anti-Xeno new government won't let that transport land because they're like, no, nah, we want all you guys gone. So NX-01 has to step in to help them out. And on that transport is a guy. Just a guy with different stuff on his forehead, just like any other Berman era Trek alien. But this one, this one Flox looks at and goes, um, just kind of get that look on his face. Like, oh, this is going to be a problem. First, I was like, hmm, this guy must be like one of his wife's husbands or some sort of relation. Because we know that there's uh, Denoblians on the planet surface. Obviously, that's why we're here. I regret in this episode because the military, it's a military coup, right? It's an unstable government. A general has taken over and said, I'm in charge now. I'm calling the shots. Get all these fucking aliens out of here. You got three days, everybody to get the fuck out of here. And then it's going to be open season on your ass. I wanted a scene where like, as they're pulling up to the planet, there's just a ton of space traffic coming off of here. Right. There's a little bit. They did that a little bit. Yeah. I I mean, within their constrained budget, I suppose they tried to pull that off because it was all ships leaving as they showed up. It was like four or five. Yeah, they tried to give you that impression. It was just not enough. You know, you did a bad job, Robert. Bad bad job, Bobby. You need to spend more money on your effects. Less Uh, on fucking cave slides and and more on this. What we will discover about the A2 plot is this guy uh, is a member of a species called the Antarans. And Antarans and Denoblians do not like each other. And they don't like each other because as we find out from Flox, who's probably our most reliable narrator, as we find out in regards to what happened, is they fought wars against each other. The last war ended centuries prior, uh, but they were brutal and bloody and terrible affairs, and neither side has spoken to the other in the interim. And over the course of those centuries, a lot of bitter... Uh, a division has set in as propaganda in regards to the enemy has taken place about the other. And this guy does not want to be treated by a dirty Denoblian uh, because they're all a bunch of, you know, as far as he's concerned, space Nazis who experiment on members of his species and murder them by the millions. What was the name of that Voyager episode with the holographic uh, Cardassian? Oh, yeah, with Space Dr. Mengele. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget the name of it, but I certainly remember it's the one where Bolana didn't want the to big be treated by puppet, it. right? Yeah. So there's a little retread going on here, but it's an interesting setup for the story, especially because uh, unlike the Cardassian 
Bajoran war and occupation. This is all shit that happened 300 years ago. So it's very easy for outsiders to say, hey, this is completely unreasonable and um, you guys need to move past this, especially since lives are on the line here. Some stuff doesn't jive, and it's stuff that uh, Billingsley even calls out in the incredibly anemic Memory Alpha entry that the picture that is painted of the Denoblians in this episode really seems to fly hard in the face of the zen-like, easygoing, polygamous, super-swinger, um, ultra chill culture that that we have seen of the Denoblian so far. I I didn't share Billingley's opinion because I think that the plot tries to keep ambiguous really what happened. That it's so long ago that it's a matter of conjecture as to how how bad were the Denoblian like how bad really were the Denoblians when it came to the conflict. Maybe they were more victimized by brutality and responded like that to shake off their normal zen behavior and they resented that and that's why they hate them like the the whole purpose is how like, many million did he say like 20 million yeah like the the denoblians killed 20 million antarans but he's not a reliable narrator to the facts right like that's the, they say that straight out is where propaganda is a wash in what happened and there is no clarity as to what actually occurred all we have is that as we will find out flocks is a deep personal disagreement with the racial animus that a lot of Denoblians have towards Antarans. But I don't think that Billingsley is right in that it automatically portrays Denoblians as not as being uncharacteristic and having fought a war merely because it may have been one way was primarily defensive. I it's jarring. And had they had a segment in here where they said, you know, it's a part of our past that we are not proud of, and we've made big changes and strides since then. And maybe like the the chill uh, behavior and culture they seem to have now as a result of backing off or, or some sort of internal change that came about, like I could reconcile that a little bit better. It's not awful. It's not a showstopper by any means, but it was it was jarring. So here's a setup, right? Uh, the Centauran guy who kind of looks a little bit like, uh, what's his face? The murderous uh, Bajoran guy from Voyager. He looks like Lon Suter? A little bit. You're not seeing that? Like the eyes, the little beady eyes. Anyways, uh, the Antaran guy finds out that Phlox is there. I refuse to let a Denoblian uh, touch me, but you'll die. I don't care. I'd rather die than let that monster touch me. Um, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, I, I am in fact, probably the first Antarn that has seen a Denoblian in decades, and this is unspeakable and I'm, I'm willing to die. And then Archer's like, well, flocks, you know, just treat him." And he's like, well, I can't cause I got to respect this thing. And he says a great line. He says, Hippocrates was not a oh, Denoblian. He says a lot of great lines, Joe. I wrote them all down. <laughs> I wrote them all down, Joe. Bad, so did, it, did it remind you of something when he said that? Like, oh. you know? Oh, yeah. I, I got a whole <laughs> right. Archer Go says, Go Archer ahead. says to Flock, yeah. mm-hmm. just sedate and treat him. Yeah. Flock says, I have to respect his wishes. The will of the patient is the cornerstone of Denoblian ethics. 
And Archer says, well, if you can help, Archer getting pissed, right? Yeah. If you can help, you're ethically bound to do so. Jonathan Archer said that. Yes, he did. And then Phlox goes, uh, Hippocrat- the Hi- Hippocrates, Hippocrates was, was not, not Denoblian. And then Archer says, Jonathan Archer, captain of mm-hmm. the Enterprise, same captain from season one, by the way. Yep. Says, this is an Earth ship. I won't let that man die in my sick bay if it can be prevented. I'm giving you an order uh-huh. to treat this deathly ill man. Uh-huh. And then Flock says, Yeah. I can't follow that order. Yep. That's Why? exactly what happens. Because I've had a change <laughs> of heart. I'm going off the script so soon, me. The writer's room needs this plot. Fuck your continuity. I'll be <laughs> as dumb as it takes to give this episode some high stakes. Forget what I've said before. Precedent is such a bore. It's not a temporal crime to change my mind. A change of heart. Oh, dear. These two motherfuckers, these two rotten motherfuckers that condemned Uh an entire goddamn planet of women and children and nice Mr. Roger sweater wearing aliens to Mm -hmm. die of the most vicious. Who were desperate for their help and requested it on multiple occasions. In that same sick bay. Please. (laughs) Peter, you're just gonna have to let it go, man. No, Joe, fuck that. I keeps it real. All right. I've looked a lot of different directions on a lot of episodes this season. Okay. But this fucking thing, they don't even mention a peep of this on the goddamn memory alpha. No, I I get it's conflicting. It's silly. It's not silly. It's it's, It's, it's awful fucking writing. It's exactly like I've said it before, and I think it's true. Just like have you have to let go of the stupid writing decision of Janeway deciding to make peace with the Borg to confront species, you know, Mewtwo's, um, you have to let go of the stupid writing decision of Dear Doctor. Because otherwise, it's like, none of the show's over. Like, you can never take these guys seriously. They're mass murderers. I need them to say, well, listen, you know, there's been things, that, there's a natural element, there's this or that, like... I regret the decision. God, that's John Sieben, Chris Black. Had you just said, you know, uh, give because me they can go here. back and they can't say that because they'd have to go back. They can go back and correct it any time. Those Mr. Roger sweater people are still there. They could go back and be like, oh, we cracked the code. Here's the cure. See ya. Anytime they want. They're not dying tomorrow. Right. Many of them are, Joe. And that's yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the tragedy it. of it. And you just have to say you have to mulligan the no. show. You have to, or you're just going to keep getting drawn back. It down. I'll keep it around a one or a two, but man, when it's a fucking medical ethics episode <sighs> and I've got him over here, you can't let that man die in my sick bay. If it can be prevented and twist his fucking arm behind his back. Like, ugh. I did. I mean, I liked the idea that they went with of Flox's different interpretation of medical ethics is rooted in his culture. And it's just like, no, I'm not human. I didn't, I don't practice medicine like a human. I didn't wasn't trained like a human. And this actually matters to me. And what you're saying is not what's native to me. 
I like that. I like that a lot. But sure. you just have you you have to dispose of Dear Doctors, like, or it just makes no sense. And then Peter breaks into a tremendous musical rendition, uh, a legendarium. Uh, just mm, ah, this ethical bullshit. <laughs> it's it's right there with the fucking shuttle pod and its inability to fucking dock with another vessel because. <laughs> the hatch they're supposed to come out of would just get <laughs> fucking crushed. Like that's, uh, that, that's, that's just this underlying theme in enterprise where it's people not fucking paying attention and, and you just got to choke down the stupid shit. So, you know, really this is all just a, a vehicle about can flocks overcome, uh, racism and it's yeah. a beautiful story. It's good. It is. Um, I like the framing on, him putting his foot down and saying, if this guy is just telling me no, like really, and I'm not shitting on flocks here so much as Archer. Archer's the big fucking hypocrite here. True. Because Archer had the decision to make on if he was going to save those people and chose not to. You know, because flocks came clean to him and said, I I, I, I figured it out. And, and dear doctor, mm-hmm. he was still opposed to giving out the cure. Mm-hmm. And that was consistent with his ethics. And it's Archer who punted on that for the stupidest reason. Yep. For, but for here, this is about Phlox trying to connect with this guy and convince him to be treated. And by convincing him to be treated, to take a different sort of racial attitude. And it's supremely well acted by John Billingsley in particular because, you know, he gets insulted a lot. He has a breaking point. That was the he, best part. Yeah, he he just barks out a very uncharacteristic, but yet still very flock sounding sort of angrous, like contempt for this man after all of the insults he lays down on him while he's just trying to treat him. And I thought the the best part of the A2 plot was actually him sitting by himself to Paul coming in saying he doesn't want company. And then she just leaves. Right. Like she's just like, oh, OK, <laughs> like I'm interpreting you, uh, your desire, uh, literally. And he goes, okay, no, wait, no, actually, I actually do need advice. Please come back. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, it, because that, it, it, if, uh, that would play so much differently if those characters were humans, but, but because they're aliens, like Flax, that was very human thing that Flax just did there. And he's just, mm. he's, it, he's kind of like picked that habit up from, cause normally Flax wouldn't, would be very open with his emotions. He, he would not hide. He would not want to hide anything. And so he's acting like a human. He's sulking. He's he's mad. He's he's not wanting to talk. It's not like him. The cool part of that A1 plot. Are we calling the A1 or the whatever? Yeah, I'm calling the, the, the doctor plot the A2 plot. The better of the two plots uh, in my book is that, you know, it on its initial framing, it's like, OK, well, this is. Maybe like the Cardassian Bajoran thing that we've already been exposed to, and yeah. the Denoblians, you know, we can buy. All right, they were the bad guys, and uh, the Antarans are—they're the ones really carrying the grudge. Uh, and it's in that outburst moment where Flox reaches his breaking point, or like, oh no, like both sides of these races uh, hate the fuck out of each other. And, and it really highlights like Flox has been walking a higher road this entire time. Impressively. So, and finally this guy needled him down by drawing his kids into it, which at first seems just like a superficial low blow and like a good place for Flox to blow up. 
Um, but it's through. So, so what happens? Let's just talk about this, this plot. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just do the right? A2 here. So Archer's like, Hey, um, I'm completely full of shit and the world's biggest fucking hypocrite. In fact, there's a, you know, a, a billboard top 10 song specifically dedicated to it called change of heart. Yeah. Um, you can find it on iTunes. Uh, I want you to go in and, and make sure that we're able to treat this guy. And then, uh, Flox is like, well, I can't, well, you know, try and mend the bridge a little bit. So Flox puts an honest effort into trying to deal with this guy. He is. And this guy is using his dying breaths to uh, flip off flocks, rub his face and shit and just be as mean spirited as possible because that's the way he was raised. We all understand how racism works and it makes you do silly things and whatever. Uh, I will criticize the choice not to have this guy looking like complete rotten ass, like for someone who's supposed to die in the next four days of severe radiation poisoning because he was working on the warp core when like plasma space aids came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy should be looking like some fucking Chernobyl shit here. And yeah, I think you, should have, you should be dying an agonizing death and still hate flocks enough to say no it would have meant more. Yeah, I agree with you. It said his lips are kind of chapped. Yeah, no, yeah, it's it, and that, well, that that kills you, though. You just die. I listen, especially when the corners of your mouth rip and it just hurts oh, yeah. so bad. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. It was Every so thank God is- for global warming and eliminating these cold winters that chapped my lips. Um, uh, so he goes, hey, you know, listen, I, I'm trying to put out this is silly and, you know, you need to try better. And the guy goes on the fence. Oh, you know, wouldn't you be so proud? What if you know? do you have family? Do you have children? What would they say if they knew that there was an Antaran, you know, in your midst? And he starts needling this uh, parent button and it goes right to the core on flocks the payoff to this is that ultimately it was it was such a pain point for flocks because he literally has lost contact with one of his children over this issue and it's laid out very beautifully where he talks about childhood experience of a grandmother who is super well, racist he, he, he mentions the kids and that's where flocks loses his shit yeah. so, you know shut the fuck up back off take my wife's you know, don't, don't get yeah, my wife's name out of your mouth. Slaps him like he was Chris Rock <laughs> right across the face. And when he comes back kind of one last time to try and convince him, he goes through his story. And it's this is probably the best writing of the season. And it's also the, telegraphed to real quick. It, it's telegraphed in the conversation with um, with Paul because yeah. it's the grandma story, which was a good one. And he talks about how his grandmother was super duper racist and wouldn't let him go on a field trip to a planet because Antarans once were there, which got it. I know where you're going with that. And he worked his life to try and change his own perspective. When his kids were old enough, he took them. He tried to impart upon them that these beliefs were stupid and silly and they shouldn't partake in them. But took them to the planet that he was supposed to go on a field trip to, but his grandma talked him out. Right. And one of his his youngest son uh, basically parted ways with him a decade prior because of of Phlox's anti-racist beliefs. And this is why I cut him to his core when he was starting to bring up his kids. It's like, no, I've actually lost contact with one of my children because I refuse to hate you. You know, Midas was a good kid. Then he fell in with a bad crowd. Those Dick Sporting Goods. Hunter, <laughs> the, the rogue Space planet boys. boys. <laughs> Has there really been a super racist episode in Enterprise yet? 
I mean, there's like quiet racism against Vulcans all the time. But yeah, true. It's, it's, it's so a soft it's racism, like, uh, racism we're used to. Listen, you know, I take this shit serious. And I have sacrificed my own relationship with my son over this very thing here. So, you know, you hitting me with this stuff, it cuts deep because uh, I've tried to be better. I've tried to grow. I'm trying to make this work. I'm trying to save your life and, you know, all to great personal cost of me. And obviously this is, you know, the the money shot for the episode. So it cuts through the Antaran guy and it softens him up a little bit. And wouldn't you know, it turns out he doesn't want to die from space cancer after all. Those chap lips got to get treated with some balm and Phlox is on it. So mm-hmm. the other plot is cave diving. As we mentioned, Mayweather is the hyper Chad who is leading the the adventure. They've got this interesting rig on their back with lights. <laughs> like I, I saw they're going for of like a high tech climbing rig and like like magnetic like pylons and stuff. They try to like sci fi it up a little Joe, bit. What if I had a change of heart and fucked my own continuity. What if I said that this would have been a really great opportunity for them to have a flashlight strapped to the wrist? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd forgive you. So you should never say that because I think like you have established over the course of hundreds of episodes of the show, of your deep and unabiding hatred. If you're going room to room with a gun, trying to like find people to shoot a, a, flashlight stuck on your wrist that's a bad place for it but like if you're climbing you need to see where you're putting your hands uh no the the rigs look cool and it it made it look silly at the same time because you've got these backpacks with like flashlight holders coming off of it and almost like i wanted to just be like a, a doc ock fucking tentacle climbing backpack that helps them get up and down here which obviously in voyager they had their cave episode why were they doing that in the caves that was uh Neelix and who was that the rock people episode where they find the Borg drone? Yes, it was. And that was also the one where Bolana desperately needed to fuck someone to survive. God, was that blood fever? It was. Wow. Yeah. Talk about two weird plots to run congruently. Anyways. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it set, it set up the, the cave in that kept you, that made it so that Tom and Bolana were oh. stuck together when she was horny. Yeah. And, know, and Tom to had to refuse to, to her fuck life. her. Yeah. Like that was, that was the setup. Is that why they gave him the the rock climbing episode? <laughs> you were great in that one, there, Bobby. Like, let's do the, let's do this one. Look at that. So look at the the. Let's compare those two episodes. The Voyager rock climbing episode also had a plot where someone was going to die if someone didn't do something to save their life, but there's a refusal to provide service. And then here it's the rock climbing episode where someone's going to die unless someone saves their life, but there's a refusal to allow them to provide service only instead of, you know, flocks fucking an Antaran. It's saving <laughs> treating him for his lip balm problems. Oh, you star Trek writers. You one trick ponies. We, you- we fucking crack the code. This is just, mm-hmm. this is blood fever with less oily Klingons and fucking and rapist, uh, Vulcans, Vulcans. I believe. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, Avort came down to, like, claim his bride and then got his then ass Bolana, beat. Bolana whooped his ass. <laughs> he so, beat the horny out of him. It was perfect. <laughs> After he killed all the fucking holodeck sex dolls, the doctor made him. <laughs> I just left him all decapitated. God, the holodeck's so good. Um, 
speaking about unwholesome activities to lead to the downfall of the 24th century. Um, so you got these kind of like futuristic backpacks and like you think maybe some cool shit's going to happen. And it's just regular old rock climbing. And again, they're going down a cave that is a comically long yeah. black pit. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, this isn't normal, guys. Like, this is this is not normal caving you're doing here. And they toss a fucking cable down. I'm like, that rope has to be like six miles. This is ridiculous that they have enough rope on them to scale this thing with the expectation they're going to be coming back up through here. And there's some cool stuff in this uh, rock climbing, you know, planet side away team thing. But just the logistics of it is so distractingly stupid, starting with the fact that they don't have nearly enough rope to get down these holes. Also, there's this consistent concern of, are we going the right way? Are we going the right way? You're walking through caves. There's no wind. There's dust everywhere. There's not even mention like, oh, I see footprints. Oh, here's a part where we have to like crawl on our stomach through this narrow passage. Like you can see shit pushed all over the place. It isn't until there's like a lunchbox full of rocks that they're like any sign of anyone. Yeah. Now that we've climbed all the way down this fucking thing. Yeah, I guess we are going the way. Also, too, they've got three days before the military starts shooting people. So they've got a day and a half to find the Nobian scientists and double back and get the fuck out. And if after a day and a half you haven't found them, the order is turn around and go back. So you've got that fucking, you know, the the timer over your head. Uh, but <clears throat> I don't know. Um, Mayweather has a really awesome moment where he saves both Reed and Trip from falling into the abyss by like holding on to two men's worth of weight. How much you think bracing his weight? broken leg against the side of a cave? It's like. <clears throat> I, it's like, did they just, did Travis Mayweather come back, like hopped up on mega testosterone or something and pull these capers down? I do not know, but they definitely uh, do him some favors with, with the level of prepared and in charge he is, but they have to take him out because he's too prepared. So you got to have drama and the drama is Trip and Reed have to finish the deal. They're going uh, down this side of the rock. There is what's very clearly a slide spray painted gray. Yes. And I said, if these guys aren't falling down this thing face first in the next 20 seconds, and I don't know anything about Star Trek and lo and behold, <laughs> they trip, they fall. And it's, uh, like you said, it's, it's, uh, Reed and it's trip in the front and it's Mayweather in the back and trip goes off the edge. And then Reed goes off the edge. It's at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm still not connecting with this crew. And I would just laugh if both these guys just fucking die and get replaced here. <laughs> I just, I'm well, I don't know. One of the more Star Trek ways to die just fell. And at the end of the slide, before you fall off the 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 bottom, you know, the into the, the chasm, there's this big mailbox shaped hole in the side of the wall. I'm like, well, tell me, tell me somehow Mayweather is going to grab this fucking thing and hold on to three people worth of weight. He gets his foot in there instead. Right. Mm-hmm. And would you say trip and read maybe what? combined since they're like hollywood ripped maybe 375 pounds combined weight yeah right yeah and you're telling me that this dude's just fucking got his foot stuck in a hole in a wall while he's on a slide and supporting all their weight and of all the complaints that i've been doing about logistics like how silly it is in this cave and this and that and the fucking flashlights the part of this i don't doubt for a minute is is travis mayweather fucking jacked enough <laughs> Let's support 
two fucking Hollywood actors dangling off the end of the rope. He is. <laughs> Not see, for a second do I doubt that this guy absolutely is well within his wheelhouse. No, no man could see that that sculpted piece of obsidian with his shirt off and not think, nah, he's got this. In fact, I, was, <laughs> I found it offensive that the episode didn't just have him pull these guys up with raw strength. Like the, the, the notion that he would somehow let go of the rope and that they might fall a little further was just preposterous to me. I, he, he's, he gets one last little insult off when they have to like have him chill while they finish the mission. It's like, you'll be fine. And then he's like, it's not me I'm worried about. You two motherfuckers have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> and uh but it's not a climbing episode i guess if travis doesn't get hurt so you got to make it happen uh and you have uh trip and reed who find the denoblians and when they find the denoblians they're a bitchy bunch of dudes and, and, like they are the most irritating self-obsessed weirdo scientists that refuse to leave even after trips like now, nah, bro, like they're, they're telling us we have to leave. And if we don't, they're going to kill you. So you want you don't you understand? Like we're here. We're supposed to get you. We've been asked to get you We've because they ordered to get you. This the, the guy, the jet, the space fascists who took over up there. They're going to fucking kill you. <laughs> and they're like, oh, the moral, the reason to stay down here. Here's this great shot. This is one, one, like another moment of this episode that I really liked. And I don't know who to thank for it. But like Trip's just standing there, just like flummoxed by this refusal. <laughs> like this makes no sense to him. He's just he's, they're not listening to his reason, right? They're not following orders and not listening to reason. He doesn't know what to do for like a split second. And he just kind of like shakes it off and he stares at him and be like, No, you're you're going. I don't care if I'm gonna beat you upside the head and tie you up and carry you out you're fucking leaving with me there's i can make you do you want me to make you i can fucking make you the scientists put up some good uh counter arguments you know we're deep enough down here that the strife on the surface isn't gonna affect us this planet uh goes through regime changes very frequently there's a good chance by the time we're done there's gonna be a new regime in effect anyway so like you know we're not worried about it they justify their position pretty well, saying that if the Science Academy knew what we found down here, they would not be ordering us because shit we found in the cave down here is going to be very pertinent to a problem we're having on Adnoblius with earthquakes and that we can save like a billion lives. Right. These guys are basically living the Voyager dream that we have, that you are going on away team missions and finding great things that totally justify the zany Going situation the yeah. that you got yourself in. Um, it also kind of identifies another silly part of this plot where it's like, okay, well, if you know the 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 regime changes and just leave your shit down here, let's go back up. And It'll then next week... There. No one's coming down there. It's a cave. Yeah. Next week when uh, they have their next regime change, come on back and resume your work. Like... you. I mean, presumably it's hard to get down there. It's inconvenient until we get a little deeper in, which might actually, in fact, be my favorite part of the episode. But yeah, uh, Trip's like, we're going or else. And they're like, fine, let us comically overpack all of our, our space rocks up so we can go. And we find out in the next scene that Denoblins apparently are Spider-Man. Great climbers. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> like, that's why they're down there. 
because they're Spider-Man. <laughs> they just, they get they just in climb things. To the, the impossibly deep uh, pit of forever, where somewhere presumably above them is Travis Mayweather. Uh, the earth starts quaking. No, actually, I think they're stuck in like the claustrophobic, like sliding on their tummy part where they find yeah. another lunchbox full of shit that they had squirreled away. Yeah, and that's where we're tra- where yeah, where Trip lays out the best line of the episode, which is, if you don't start moving in five seconds, I'm going to sh- take my face pistol and shoot you in the ass, which is something only someone from the South would say. <laughs> Listen, we got a way of doing things on the Enterprise, and it's anytime we're in a cave and I'm in the cave too, uh, face pistols are getting shot. Usually I'm the one getting shot by my boss, uh, but she's not here, and I've got the pistol, so you're going to be the one getting shot. Um. It's not an earthquake. There is uh, infighting between the new regime and the old regime. There's some holdouts and the uh, I don't know. They're dropping depth charges on each other or whatever. It's causing earthquakes. There's some shit that falls on. OK, we really got to go for real now. They get to the wall and it's at this point it dawns on them like, hey, you know, we're covered in like harnesses and climbing gears and you guys just have a bunch of like plastic pencil cases full of rocks like <laughs> Where's your climbing gear? Oh, we didn't bring climbing gear. And I'm like, oh, my God, please tell me I'm going to get some bad CGI Spider-Man stuff. And they're like, yeah, we're like bad CGI spider climbers. I'm like, please show it. And yeah, they just it looks like fucking Batman. It's not even CGI. Like these guys are very clearly on a flat surface, just like walking on all fours. But next to him is like, you know, Adam West on a rope squatting like he's slowly climbing up. So they just spider up there. They find Mayweather. They help schlep him the rest of the way up. Meanwhile, up on the ship, you know, Archer's freaking out because he He threatens to start a war with a planet. He just got to for the very first time if they don't like stop depth charging where the caves are. And they respond to that. And then uh, the episode ends with them getting to the shuttlecraft. Uh, You think there's going to be a fight? Then there isn't. Which was a weird choice. I don't know why they just didn't leave. Yeah. I... And, and then it was a, a final scene on the A2 plot, which is, hey, there's going to be dead Oblians hanging on your ship. I hope you're willing to continue to grow. And he's like, yes. Yes. Then, there's been but... positive growth and basically uh, Earth's meddling in our people's affairs are resulting in a brighter future for both of us. And this is the promise of the Federation. And, uh, you know, what you guys are here to see. Uh, Maybe it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I I was going to say is I think you said something in the beginning and it stick with me for our entire discussion. Something wound these guys up and that's, I think that might have raised the episode a lot in my estimation. Also might be just the soft bigotry of low expectations that come with season Mm. two being as bad as it's been. And that that this one was like enjoyable and I was engaged and I really thought like everyone was trying that I was like, oh, this is great. Maybe it's not great. I'm still going to stick by like this was worth watching and I enjoyed it. And uh, but well, but uh, yeah, there was something going on here that just felt like there was there that that we've been missing. We'll say this that. is, you know, again, we'll jump back to. Uh, oh, gosh, what was the one with um, the evil uh, Vulcan science people not wanting to help? To Paul, because she's got space aids. Oh, yeah. The one with the Tremere Chantry. I forget right. the name of it, but yeah, that one. Stigma. I, know, I think it was maybe Stigma. stigma. Okay. So, you know, it's it's the beloved social commentary well that old Trek used to be able to go to and highlight 
things and, and prompt social change. I think this is a nice reflection on racism and the need to grow past it without just completely clobbering you over the fucking head with it. And, you know, it's not it's not like the AIDS episode level of in your face. I agree. Which, again, I really like the AIDS episode because I don't until I read that that was a big part of the the AIDS awareness push they were doing on network television. It wasn't like it was really hit me in the face. We I had think, a, we had a gay uh, fan of ours who called us out for being extremely straight for not feeling like it was hitting us over the head, by the way, on Twitter. Uh, Archivist Prime. Hmm. Good for good looking out. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you can tell you guys are straight that you were like not immediately uh, like rolling your eyes at how in your face it was. I'm like, oh, okay, fair. <laughs> I like. I like the old style commentary that they would do where it's not, hey, we're going to highlight a thing. And then also in the process, uh, the good guys are going to stunt hard on the the ignorant guys and uh, really rub their face and shit and 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 zing them into compliance. It's like, hey, uh, you're going halfway and I'm going halfway and we're yep. reaching this thing together. And it's this positive growth experience, not uh, someone getting bullied into something. I, I don't know. Uh, the end end is also really great because not only have we on the, uh, the flocks plot shown that, Hey, there's positive social growth going, but it also has a direct uh, return on investment in flocks, own life as this has lit a fire under his ass to reach out to his son, meet us and say, Hey, listen, it's been 10 years since we talked. Uh, some shits happened on my little adventure on this um, hairless monkey ship I've been hanging around with. And uh, I think we need to try to, you know, I, he makes an honest effort to try and reconnect with his son, share what's happened and hope that that's maybe going to have a positive impact uh, on his family. Because because yeah, you know it's very good for it's his great flocks content here and it, it reemphasizes the importance of his family to him. and. Obviously, that's we've seen that tied in with Denoblian culture already, and that he's very thoughtful, and he's a lot of depth, and he's a lot of lived experience, which is probably unique amongst everyone else on the show. You know, like even to Paul, he's she's older, but she's also been very rigid and career focused. You know, like and, Flo- and Flox is the only family man really on the ship. Everybody else is a bachelor. True. So. So it's cool to have that fleshed out more. I also like that he opens the letter and then like they kind of move out of range of what he's actually saying. Yeah. What I need then is at the end of the credits, I need a stinger where he finishes the letter and says, so I hope given all that you can give Antarans a second chance. Also PS, um, I tried to get the engineer, uh, to fuck your mother, but these humies are too good for her. So, Well, what episode of Enterprise are we going to be too good for next week, Peter? We're going into season two, episode 22. Congenitor? Uh, Cognitor. Cognitor, maybe? Cogenitor? Yeah, maybe (sighs) Cogenitor. Fuck. We're going to find out, I guess, next week. (laughs) Uh, Ooh. Written by Berman and Braga, directed by LeVar Burton. There's no uh, teleplay, so this is... This is direct from the source. Oh gosh, Lavar Burton, Lavar, <laughs> what a what fucking river are they sending up this time? Enterprise encounters the Vesicians, a race that includes a third gender 
of congenitors who are treated as second-class citizens. Yep. Smells like some Berman. Speaking of it, social commentary. It is an episode that is is very Trek, uh, very well known. And I, you know, I, to be honest, I don't think I've watched this one in quite some time. It's like held up as a great Trek episode, but I, I, I don't want to impeach our, our thoughts because it's, it's probably been more than a decade since I've seen it. It's just one I, I think I've skipped over in rewatches in the past, and I can't really tell you why. So I'm looking forward to digging into this one again. It'll be it'll be like I'm watching it for the first time again. All right, we'll, we'll see you all for that adventure next week. 